image of like an old Quaker or something like that. I, I prefer a rant. I'm about to give my rant now. So uh, I do have a PowerPoint. Um, if you guys could put that up right now. Excellent. Thank you very much. So I have this thing where uh, a few years ago I decided to stop watching the news. I was out with some friends at a restaurant. Yeah, thank you. I was out with some friends at a restaurant, and the news was on behind the bar. And it painted a picture of the world that was so bleak and hopeless that I, I just couldn't enjoy myself the whole rest of the night. And I just wound up going home, and I was depressed for like three days afterwards. So, as a consequence, I stand before you now one of the most ignorant men in America. Uh, I know that gas prices dropped, and then they went back up, and I have no idea why. Um, I, I can't name any of the presidential candidates for 2016. That's how bad it is. I'm so out of touch. I'm not 100% sure what today's date is. So, um, but even I can't help but know that the world's at war with terror right now. Just, uh, just since I started writing the sermon, there's been a suicide bombing in a church in Pakistan. There was another at a marketplace in Nigeria. And there was a car, a knife attack on border guards in Jerusalem. Terrorism and news about terrorism is so prevalent that it pierces even my cloud of willful ignorance, and it forces me to think about it and what it means for our world. So uh, a few weeks ago, I asked myself a question, and the answer I came up with led me to want to give this sermon or rant. So this is the question. Let's go back to September 11th, 2001, the morning of the 9-11 attacks. Now, let's say the Navy SEALs had found and shot bin Laden just a couple days after, say like on the 13th. Would we still have gone to war? Think about your answer and hold on to it. I'll come back to it in a few minutes. It's pretty important. So I started thinking about all this stuff right after this horrific series of attacks in Paris last January, which included uh, Islamic militants massacring an office full of comedians and holding a Jewish delicatessen hostage. So when I first heard about these attacks, I'm pretty sure I had the same reaction as just about everyone else in the world. I was angry. I wanted revenge. I wanted to go after these guys and massacre them in the streets as an example of anyone else who thinks they can get away with hurting innocent people. But as the days passed and my anger cooled, as anger always does with time, I started thinking about my reaction to these kind of events. The same terrible knee-jerk reactions that most people have when they encounter these kind of horrors. And I realized that I was going about it all wrong. I wanted blood for blood. I wanted an eye for an eye. I wanted vengeance. But what I wanted was not what Yeshua taught us, was it? Uh, This is a quote from the Bible. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, uh, I've always thought this was Yeshua's most difficult teaching. You know, give up all your possessions and follow me. That's easy. Gouge out your right eye if it causes you to sin. Ah, piece of cake. I can do it right here. But, but to allow someone who harms you to get away with it? Now, this is counter to everything we've ever been taught. There's one thing that Americans understand. It's that violence must be met with violence if there's ever to be peace. But I think Yeshua understood something then that we still haven't figured out. He knew that if we continue to subscribe for eye for an eye 
we're going to lose the war in the end. Not because we're going to get outgunned or outfought or outlasted. We're going to lose because in winning, we will become the thing that we hate. 2,000 years ago, Yeshua gave us a different option. One so revolutionary that it still seems unbelievable to us now. But what does turning the cheek mean in the face of something as evil as terrorism? Does it mean we roll over and let them do what they want to us? Does it mean we let Iran get weapons and wipe Israel off the map? I don't think so. But it does mean that we need to look at things from a different point of view. So before I go any further today, I'm going to give a disclaimer. Some of the things I'm going to say today are probably going to make at least some of you angry. I'm going to try to explain my position as best I can. If it doesn't make sense to you, you can come talk to me about it after the service. Because I'll be honest, some of the things I'm going to say today make me angry. Because it's counter to everything that the movies and the news media have ever told me. But I believe that if we want to keep terrorists from ruining our world, the first thing we need to do is ignore the scoreboard. Now, out of context, this doesn't make much sense. But I think this is a handy metaphor. So let me give you an example. Uh, allow me to quote that classic philosopher known as the poster for Death Wish 2. First his wife, now his daughter. It's time to even the score. Well, the next time there's a violent attack, the first thing we need to do is forget about the score completely. So what does that mean? So even those of us who aren't Charles Bronson have this invisible scoreboard in our mind that tracks how many times we've been wronged versus how many times we've done the wronging. So get into a nasty argument with somebody, the scoreboard sets the agenda. If Steve's girlfriend brings up the time he got drunk and embarrassed her at a party, he now has to bring up the time she selfishly got a tumor and ran up a bunch of medical bills. But here's the ugly trick that the world plays on you, and it's going to mess up your life every day from now to the grave. In reality... The scoreboard is your opponent. Now, it sounds a little zen, so let me give you an easy example. A couple of years ago, two men set off a bomb at the Boston Marathon that killed several people and blew off the legs of several dozen more. In the wake of that attack, the internet was just flooded with comments that the killers should have their legs cut off in return. And that makes sense, because that would even the score. You know, but even five seconds consideration demonstrates how monstrous that idea is. Violent mutilation is awesome as long as it's targeted towards people who deserve it. No, no. The, the cruel reality is if that guy gets amputated, the score isn't criminal one, society one. It's cruelty two, society zero. Because now we've added to the sum total of cruelty in the world. We've reinforced it as something that can and should happen. And in doing so, we made it that much more common. Now, think about the argument between the couple earlier. With each new insult, was either side winning or losing? No, the only loser was the relationship itself. Steve thinks the argument insult, insult score is showing Steve 22, Becky 16. The real score was resentment 38, relationship zero. Now, the scoreboard, it turns out, is nothing more than a manifestation of the most primitive violent, reptilian part of your brain. Seeing someone, someone wrong you and then letting it slide, letting that score stay in their favor, it's almost physically painful. So yeah, if SEAL Team 6 had put a bullet in Bin Laden's skull on September 13th, 2001, we would absolutely still have gone to war. 
we'd still have been 3,000 deaths down on the scoreboard. There's no way we would let that go. So the next time you turn on the news and see the terrorists have blown up 10 children with a car bomb, that's the first step. Realize the scoreboard lies. It will tell you that winning the game means dropping bombs that you know will kill 10 times as many children as collateral damage. The score, the real score would then be violence against children, 110, humanity zero. With me so far? Now, here's the point where I try to guess what you're thinking in response to all this. Like I said before, the sermon has the potential to make people angry. So I'm thinking that you're thinking something like this. So we're supposed to just let the other side get away with it? We have to stand up for freedom and goodness. Otherwise, evil wins. This is a war. And the thing is, I agree. But make sure you're on the right team. Wow, that makes it sound like I'm about to suggest we all go join ISIS. Don't do that. Um, my point is, yes, I believe we are fighting a war here. But it's important that we understand what we're fighting against. So think about this. When a bunch of terrorists blow up a school or shoot up an office full of cartoonists, do you think it's because they don't know that we have guns and bombs and drone technology? Do you think they do what they do because they believe we're too weak to strike back? These people can read the news. They know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to overreact because we do it every time. And that's why they do it. So stop, step back, and understand something that Yeshua knew 2,000 years ago that most of America still doesn't. They do what they do because they know we're too weak to resist striking back. Our knee-jerk, bomb-dropping, enemy-destroying reflex is our weakness. They're trying to exploit it because retaliation bombings are how they recruit more terrorists to their side. Everyone knows that. And understand, when I talk about their side, I'm not talking about Islam or even Islamic terrorism. Their side is what I'm henceforth going to call Team violence. Now, the bully doesn't fight because he wants to win. He fights because he wants a world in which everything is resolved by fighting. It doesn't matter if he loses. The moment you choose to fight, his side wins, and the world becomes more like the world he wants to live in. And it's the same here. The terrorists aren't on the side of Islam. They're on the side of bombs. Excuse me. So what I've discovered and what most people disagree with me about is that it's irrelevant what banner they fight under. You know, if we were to just win the war on terrorism tomorrow, team violence would just pop up again under another name. Maybe this one doesn't justify it with the Koran. Maybe they'll do it under the banner of eugenics or racial purity or environmentalism. In the wake of attack, you constantly hear about how this is a clash of civilizations, a cultural war between the savage religious fundamentalists and the more secular Western societies. But the moment you buy into that idea, you've already joined their side. You know, it's the side of tribalism, the primitive instinct that says your group has to win at all costs. And I honestly don't care how you define your group, whether you consider yourself Jewish or Latino or American, because ultimately I think there are only two sides— those who think their tribe has to dominate the earth, and those who think that tribes can live together in peace. Look how it happened last time. A group attacked us. We all agreed we had to stop them because they were intolerant of other cultures. They don't respect human rights, and they're violent. Then we were told the only way we could beat them was by becoming more intolerant of other cultures, 
by no longer respecting human rights and by becoming more violent. In other words, we can't beat them unless we become more like them. It's like a doctor telling you he's going to get rid of the tumor by growing a bigger, meaner tumor next to it. Even if it works, teen cancer wins. And then you just fell for a scam that's been tripping up humanity for about 100,000 years or so. So, how can we avoid this? Don't scratch the itch. Every time there's an attack, people start showing up on your TV, explaining in snide, sarcastic tones how the courageous choice is to hate Muslims like they're the lone brave voice in the world afraid to hold such a controversial opinion. The reality, which you've known since you were in diapers, is that your most automatic, unthinking reflex is to always hit back. And that growing up means resisting it. When you got frustrated with a toy, you broke it. When you feel the mosquito, you swat it. When you get cut off on the highway, you scream obscenities. Each time, it's that primitive lizard part of your brain taking over. There's nothing courageous about it. A dog can do it. Plants do it. It's the thinking part, the human part, that says stop, resist the initial urge, and actually think about what action will make the world better. It's like resisting the urge to scratch an itch and actually stopping to say, maybe instead of scratching the rash till it bleeds, I should go see a doctor about some ointment. And this is harder than anything I've said so far because scratching the hatred itch feels so good. It feels so good we'll write entire books rationalizing it to make it sound like the thoughtful, considered position. But you can never lose sight of this basic fact. Kill them all is an easy, lazy reaction. That's the animal reflex, the old tribal instincts lurching to the surface from the caveman part of your brain. What's worse is that we are superstitious, irrational creatures and this reflex quickly turns into the oldest, most destructive superstition of all. The person, this person wronged me, so in return, I need to punish this person and everyone who resembles this person. So I have a co-worker who advocates the deportation of every Muslim in the country and who thinks putting Japanese Americans in internment camps in World War II was a good idea. A thousand centuries later, that part hasn't changed. It still feels good to think of everything in terms of a culture war. If a criminal is black, he isn't just an individual stealing a TV for weed money. He's part of the black crime problem. The obnoxious teenager in line next to me isn't an annoying individual. She's part of this generation of entitled brats. Everyone who wrongs you becomes a foot soldier in an army you must go to war with. Resisting that idea takes hard mental effort, the equivalent of waiting for the skin cream to do its work while the itch prickles. It means granting empathy and humanity to people who won't do the same for you. Remember, taking the high road isn't satisfying. Revenge is satisfying. Taking the high road is like sitting perfectly still while a fly buzzes around your ear forever. This is where every morality tale you've ever heard, from religious parables to primetime sitcoms, get it wrong. These stories always come down to, whoa, lost my PowerPoint, doesn't matter. These stories always come down to doing the right thing feels great in the end. The homeless man is grateful for the donation. The violent thug melts at the sign of kindness. That isn't how it plays out here in the real world. Out here, the bad guys see your empathy as a sign of weakness and take advantage of it while taunting you. The homeless guy may take your donated blanket and spin on it. The friend you loan money to might blow it on booze and lotto tickets. But you still have to take the high road. Why? Because in reality, the only cultural war 
is between people who take the high road and people who don't. So there is some good news in all this. It helps to remember that evil is rare, but weakness is common. It's hard for anyone, it's hard for me to find anyone who agrees with the statement that evil is rare, but it seems pretty easy to prove. Now, how many evil masterminds have you known in your life versus people who are just screwed up in some way? Yeah. I, I probably need some proof to back this up. I took the liberty of pulling up an FBI's list, list of every murder that took place in 2010. I would have had it up there. It would have been too small for you to see. But basically, the statistics say that more than half the people who were killed in any given year were usually killed by someone when they know, mostly their own family members. 42% of the people were killed during an argument. 23 during a robbery, 8% were killed in gang violence. So once you strip away everyone who, who was killed while on drugs, in a rage, during a robbery, or protecting themselves, you just keep going until you're down to the cold, calculating criminals like you see in the movies, you don't have a lot of murders left. There are, there are still a few, sure, but for every one criminal mastermind, there are about 1,000 mere knuckleheads. Now, knucklehead is actually a cop term. For someone who isn't really a bad guy, but who just has poor impulse control or is mentally imbalanced or is an addict or is in general just can't get his life together. They're lost, weak-willed people who fell in with the wrong crowd, and I think everyone in this room probably knows a few of them. But the problem is, once again, it's far more satisfying to imagine that everyone who wrongs you did it as an, as an act of intentional evil. Because if they're just sad screw-ups who spend most of their time victimizing themselves, that would make it a lot harder to fantasize about killing them. If their bad impulses and addictions and irrational hatred hurt them more than, more, even more than they hurt other people, then that means those impulses are the enemy. And what fun is that? Bad impulses can't be killed by guns or tanks or kung fu. So I'm coming towards the end of this. Um, I think the thing that's most important to remember is this. We're winning. Yeshua's way is working. There's something that you hear all the time that I think is really crucial to understand as a lie. It's the assertion that violence is the most powerful force in the world. That team violence always wins because there's no match for it. This is why we're so scared of street, street crime. Sorry, street crime. Even if you're a billionaire, some thug could stab you in an alley and none of your wealth would matter. Violence is humanity's ultimate trump card. What difference does it make that we have wealth an infrastructure, and a thriving culture, if a bunch of violent extremists can just blow it us, us up? The answer, of course, is it makes all the difference. The fact that a terrorist could murder your family doesn't make it pointless to have one. The idea that violence is the only thing that works is probably the most widely believed yet easily disproven lie in all of human history. The truth, backed up by cold, hard facts, is that violence has been on an astonishing decline for thousands of years. Even counting all the world wars and atrocities of the 20th century, you're 30 times less likely to die a violent death today than you would have been if you'd been born in the Middle Ages. More recently, crime of every kind has been steadily dropping year by year by year. Team violence is losing. And the only way they can win is if they convince us that their way is the only way. Think of it this way. If we go back to the Charlie Hebdo attack, we can see how self-defeating it is. If their God is real, he doesn't mind being mocked. By definition, an all-powerful being isn't going to have the same kind of insecurities that we do. That knee-jerk reaction to avenge their God came purely from the terrorists, from their own human fears and rage, proving that those violent men don't really have faith that their God is all-powerful. But the key is to apply the same lesson to ourselves. 
If their God is real and all-powerful, then mere mockery cannot harm him. And if our society is right and strong and best for mankind, then mere terrorism cannot harm it. In both cases, escalating the violence is an act of weakness and fear. It's a crisis of faith, the belief that your way of doing things is fragile, a house of cards that will tumble at the slightest tremor, that peaceful civilization doesn't work. Have faith in civilization. History says they can't beat us. We can only beat ourselves. Have faith in us. We have the capacity for great evil, but I believe God has put in us the desire to do good. We can change the world if we're strong enough to try. And have faith in Yeshua. Yes, his teachings are hard, but he understood what strength truly means. And he knew the road to peace can't be built on a mortar of plucked out eyes and broken teeth. Thank you, everyone. That's all I have to say. Um.